This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Lost Episode 11 Ring out the old, ring in the new. Ring happy bells across the snow. The year is going, let him go. Ring out the false and ring in the true. So goes the second verse of the poem, In Memoriam, by Alfred Lord Tennyson, who saw many a new year between his birth in 1809 and his passing in 1892. And it describes a British tradition of ringing church bells across the land at midnight on December 31st to mark the passing of the year. So if you've ever heard the phrase, ring out the old, ring in the new, or out with the old, in with the new, now you know where that comes from. Here we stand at the dawning of a new year, and we're reminded by Tennyson that it's time to leave the past behind and look to the future, which is precisely what we intend to do. But unfortunately, we can't just jump into the new year without first bidding goodbye to the old, and we can't welcome the true without sweeping aside the falsehoods of the past. And that comes as two things. First of all, as is a sort of quarterly tradition here, we like to gather up the bits and pieces we had to cut from recent scripts for various reasons and share them as interesting tidbits. Second of all, we have some corrections to make. A few listeners contacted us to point out a few inaccuracies in some of our recent episodes, and we want to set the record straight. Let's start with our episode from last November, entitled Iron Rations, and a bit of a biblical boo-boo we made. In that episode, we were talking about the magically preserved, highly nutritious elven waybread from the Lord of the Rings series, Lembas. And we suggested it might be partially a reference to the manna from heaven that God rained on the Israelites during their flight from Egypt in the second book of the Christian Old Testament and the Hebrew scripture, the Torah. And in glossing over a few bits of the story, we made a minor error. And in a complete failure of our own research, we made a major mistake. We suggested that the manna from heaven rained down on the Israelites for just a few days, instead of sustaining them for 40 years. That was a minor blunder. The major blunder was suggesting a connection between God's command to Moses to preserve some of the manna for future generations as evidence that God provided for the Israelites in their time of need, and between the unleavened bread served at traditional Passover dinners. That was just wrong. The two are unrelated. And to make it clear, let's talk about Passover and go into a little bit more detail about the Exodus. At the start of the book of Exodus, the Israelites are enslaved in the nation of Egypt. And to be clear, we should point out that the Israelites are various extended family tribes that can trace their lineage back to the 12 sons of Jacob. They are called Israelites because Jacob earned himself the nickname Israel by basically getting into a fistfight with God, or at least an angel of God. Now, he didn't know he was fighting an angel at the time, to be fair. And the whole affair has been interpreted differently by different biblical scholars. But the point is, the word Israel means to struggle with God. And the angel gave Jacob that name once Jacob won the fight after fighting all night and despite a dislocated hip. And so, his descendants are the people who struggle with God. The Israelites. Anyway, 
Jacob's youngest son gets a Technicolor coat, has some visions, ends up in Egypt, saves Egypt from famine, ultimately draws the other Israelites to Egypt because it's the only place with food, inspires a rock opera, and then dies and gets forgotten over many generations. Fast forward a long time, and now the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. Pharaoh's priests bring him a prophecy that a kid is about to be born among the Israelites, who will basically destroy Egypt. Pharaoh panics and orders the drowning of all newborn babies. The midwives take pity on the babies and don't drown them all, and lie to Pharaoh about it. And so Moses is born. And he's hidden, and eventually ends up being adopted into Pharaoh's family. But when he sees how the Israelites are treated by their taskmasters, he loses his cool and kills one of the slavers. And he flees Egypt, rather than face prosecution. He meets a shepherd, marries the shepherd's daughter, and years later, God appears in the form of a flaming shrubbery and tells Moses to go team up with his brother Aaron, demand a few concessions of Pharaoh, and call down plagues on Egypt when the Pharaoh refuses. So far, so good. There's an escalating series of plagues, and Pharaoh continues to refuse to free the Israelites. And then, after Egypt is a dark, locust-covered land filled with blood rivers and dead cows and crawling with frogs, Pharaoh still won't release his slaves. Which seems a little crazy, until you notice that God keeps bolstering Pharaoh's heart. See, Pharaoh really didn't want to let his slaves go. Of course he didn't. But he was growing increasingly afraid of God. And God didn't want Pharaoh to capitulate purely out of fear. He wanted Pharaoh and Egypt and the world to actually learn something. At least, that's how some biblical scholars explain the heart-bolstering bit. It doesn't matter to our story. Point is, things escalate to the point where God finally tells Moses and Aaron that he will handle things himself. He, God, is going to go out among the Egyptians and get them good. Previously, see, each plague had actually been summoned by Aaron or Moses using a magic staff God had given them. But this one, God did himself, and he warned Moses and Aaron that after God was done, Pharaoh was going to be so mad that he was going to drive them out of Egypt. So they'd better be ready to run, gather their stuff, borrow whatever they could from their neighbors, get ready to book it. God also gave some very specific instructions about how the Israelites should make sacrifices to God and mark their homes so God would pass over their homes when he went out among the Egyptians. So the sun goes down and darkness falls. The Israelites are all ready to go. Their homes have been marked and they're cooking dinner when suddenly there's a great cry across Egypt. Every firstborn son of Egypt was struck down by God. And sure enough, Pharaoh ran down to Moses and told him to take his people and their flocks and everything else and get the heck out now, right now. And they had to run. And because they had to run, their bread hadn't had time to rise in their ovens. So they had to eat unleavened flatbread. And that is the origin of the Passover Seder. That's a traditional Jewish observance in which the story of the plagues of Egypt and of God's passing over the Israelites' home is recounted and a meal is eaten in remembrance of the event. And during Passover, traditional Jews are not allowed to eat leavened bread, and the truly observant are supposed to remove all the yeast and other leavening agents from their homes. While we're ringing out the false and ringing in the true, we also have to go back to the story we told about William the Bastard, a.k.a. William the Conqueror, and the Norman conquest of England. It was pointed out that in our hasty summary, 
we glossed over a few important details and implied a few things that weren't quite right. As we mentioned, William was a Norman. Specifically, he was the illegitimate son of the Duke of Normandy in France. He was born in 1028, and as we noted, the Normans were the descendants of Danish, Icelandic, and Norwegian pirates and raiders who settled the region and mixed with the locals on the northern coast of the Frankish kingdom, which became modern France. Though they retained their prowess in battle and general fearlessness, they were quick to adopt the ways of their new home. They converted to Christianity, gave up sea roving in favor of horsemanship, but they were a bit rough around the edges. After he was knighted by King Henry I of France while still a teenager in 1042, the cunning and powerful William managed to firm up his control of his duchy. It was during this time that his enemies started calling him the Bastard. But his enemies dwindled quickly once he started expanding the Norman holdings by conquering the neighboring provinces of Brittany and Maine. Meanwhile, across the Channel in England, the Danes had thrown England into a bit of chaos. They had driven the King of England, Edward, eventually known as St. Edward the Confessor, into exile. But he was able to retake the throne and hold the country together. That was in 1041. The problem was, Edward didn't have a child. His closest next of kin was his mother's brother's grandson. Some illegitimate Norman kid named William. Because the unity of England was pretty tenuous and the political situation was messy, Edward made sure to name that kid William, his successor well before he died. But after he died, Edward's brother-in-law, a powerful English lord named Harold Godwin, seized the throne, even though he promised to uphold Edward's named successor. And the Council of English Lords who attested the succession went along with him, rather than allow some filthy Norman to sit on the throne. And that is what ultimately led William the Conqueror to invade England. And because William was a vassal of King Henry I, the king was very supportive of said invasion. And because William was a follower of the Catholic Church, the Pope was also quite supportive of the invasion. We kind of muddied that up a bit when we explained this story. But those are the details. The other thing we pointed out was that William tried to keep many of the English lords in power. And this was technically true. But it wasn't the whole story. And it didn't work very well. See, one of the reasons the Normans integrated readily into the Kingdom of France is that they are actually pretty good imitators. They pick things up quick. They adapt. And William was smart enough to recognize that the political situation in England was tenuous and that if he barged in and changed everything, it might cause some problems. He made this clear in a speech soon after he claimed the throne. And so he tried to keep a lot of the English nobility in power, but he faced a few difficulties. First, his own subordinates expected positions of power in his new kingdom. Family, friends, military leaders, they also expected a promotion or two for their service. So to placate them, he had to put his own people in power whenever he could. Second, the English lords were not at all happy with being ruled by the Norman conqueror. He faced a lot of rebellion and resistance, and he had to remove a lot of people from power. Bloodily and violently. And as we've mentioned in previous episodes, the Normans brought their special brand of feudalism to England, along with changes to the social and religious structure of the country. In the end, the government of England was transformed into a wholly unique new form 
and it was controlled almost completely by the Normans. Of course, English nobles who towed the line were able to maintain their power. It's just that, in the end, there weren't many of those. Now, much of those details were left out of our episode simply because we only have so much time, and we have to gloss over a few things, and we're sorry if that led to inaccuracy. But sometimes, we have to leave things out simply because there are just too few interesting details. And that's exactly what happened in our riddle episode. We wanted to mention something, and one or two folks did ask us about it later, but there just wasn't enough of a story to make it worth it. So we ultimately cut it out. But it made us sad, because it meant not talking about our favorite Batman villain of all time, the Riddler. These days, the Riddler is a well-known member of Batman's rogues gallery. He's known for his green suit emblazoned with question marks and his compulsion to provide the police and Batman with riddles and puzzles that will allow them to foil his crimes. If they're smart enough. And of course, Batman always is. Like many Batman villains, the Riddler has gotten darker and more sympathetic throughout the years. In a 1999 issue of Batman Gotham Adventures, it was revealed that Edward Nigma that's the Riddler's real name, suffers from obsessive-compulsive disorder. In that issue, he tried desperately to commit a crime without leaving one of his signature riddles. But he did anyway. In the end, when Batman solves the riddle and foils the crime, the Riddler explains, I didn't want to leave you any clues. I never planned on going back to the asylum. But I left you clues anyway. I might have to go back to Arkham Asylum, because might actually be crazy. Surely, such a character should have an interesting history, right? And we don't mean his fictional origin story, we mean the story of his creation. Well, it turns out that he doesn't. He was just a throwaway villain for one issue of Detective Comics, written by Bill Finger and drawn by Dick Sprang in 1948. That was pretty much the end or would have been. But then in 1966, a production company called Ed Graham Productions got the television rights to the Batman comic strip. The intention was to make a kid's show for Saturday morning television, something akin to the adventures of Superman and the Lone Ranger. But an ABC executive and longtime Batman man, Yale Udoff, had a different vision. See, As we mentioned in our episode about wool, television was going through an evolution in the 1960s. The sitcoms popularized in the 1950s were giving way to adventure, science fiction, and other genres. And one show that was doing particularly well was a not-quite-funny, not-quite-serious spy adventure series called The Man from U.N.C.L.E. And Yale Udoff had a similar vision for Batman, something fun, not too serious, but exciting and adventurous. Batman for prime time. And that's where the television series starring Adam West came from, slotted firmly between sitcom and action-adventure. It was fun, silly even, but it took itself seriously. Which made it even funnier, and it was a hit. 
And as the show was looking around for good villains to fit the theme of the show, and actors to portray them, they stumbled on the Riddler, and they cast a talented and well-loved character actor, impressionist, and comedian named Frank Gorshin to play him. He'd already made a name on The Ed Sullivan Show and Tonight starring Steve Allen, and he was a hit. He was even nominated for an Emmy for his portrayal of the Riddler. And that's how the Riddler got cemented as a member of Batman's rogues gallery instead of being as forgotten as the Penny Plunderer or the Monarch of Menace. We're just sorry the story had to get cut from our Riddle episode. But before we close this episode once and for all, before we bid goodbye to the old year and welcome the new, it's important to remember another New Year's tradition. This one comes in the form of a song, one which we've all probably heard the first verse of. Perhaps we've even sung it, but one that's probably left us wondering just what the heck it's all about. That song is the traditional New Year's ditty, Auld Lang Syne. And it begins, Should auld acquaintance be forgot, and ne'er brought to mind? Should auld acquaintance be forgot, for days of Auld Lang Syne. What does that mean? What is that song really about? Well, first, you've got to know that Auld Lang Syne means for the sake of the past or for days long gone by. And basically, the first verse is a question. Should we forget the people we knew and leave them behind in the past? And that doesn't sound very nice at all. I mean, it's one thing to leave the past behind and look to the future with hope and optimism, but it's another thing entirely to forget the people you knew, the people who are no longer a part of your life and move on. But once you get past that first verse, the song becomes a lot clearer about what it's really about. For example, the next verse goes like this. We twa hae run aboot the braes and pood the goings fine, but we wandered men a weary fit since days of old lang syne. See, it's a bit more bittersweet than you... Oh, you don't know what it's saying? Well, accents aside, that's because it's a poem written by Robert Burns, a Scottish poet, in 1780. And it's written mostly in the English and the Scots language. Now, we should point out that there is some argument as to whether the Scots language, as opposed to Scottish Gaelic, is actually a distinct language or a dialect. But there's no official criteria... The Scots language is a Germanic language, as is English, and they are very closely related. A recent poll by the Scottish government found that about two-thirds of the adult population of Scotland don't even consider Scots to be a true language, especially among those who use it. But that's neither here nor there. The point is, Robert Burns submitted the poem Auld Lang Syne to the Scots Musical Museum in 1788. But he never claimed to have written it. He claimed he was recording an old traditional Scottish song. And there's evidence to support that. And the song isn't about forgetting the people from your past. It's about not forgetting them. That verse we quoted, for example, that translates to, we too have run around the hills and picked the pretty flowers, but we've gone our separate ways a long time since then. And the rest of the song is like that too. It's about swimming in rivers together, but now being separated by oceans. It's about having spent many happy days together and now being so far apart that you'll probably never meet again. And so it begins by asking the question, 
Should we forget the people of the past once they're gone from our lives forever? And the answer is, and surely you'll buy your pint and surely I'll buy mine. And we'll take a cup of kindness yet for the sake of old Lang Syne. Maybe we'll never buy pints together again. But we may share a mug again someday. And even if we don't, as long as we remember each other, we'll always share the cup of kindness we showed each other. And so, dear listener, even as we look to the future, we should all remember those who have shown us kindness and friendship in the past. Even if we never meet again, even if we never meet at all, we must still be grateful for those who have been good to us. Thank you for your listenership and support. And to those of you who have written in to encourage us, suggest ideas, or correct our mistakes, thanks to you too. For days of auld lang syne, my friend, for days of auld lang syne, we'll share a cup of kindness yet, for days of auld lang syne. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. 